Section 34 of Volume 1E of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Greg Golding. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume. Volume 1E, Section 34, Chapter 57, Part 2. After a short combat, the cavalry of the Royalists gave way, and such of the infantry as stood next them were likewise borne down and put to flight. Newcastle's regiment alone, resolute to conquer or to perish, obstinately kept their ground, and maintained by their dead bodies the same order in which they had at first been ranged. In the other wing, Sir Thomas Fairfax and Colonel Lambert, with some troops, broke through the Royalists, and, transported by the ardour of pursuit, soon reached their victorious friends, engaged also in pursuit of the enemy. But after that tempest was passed, Lucas, who commanded the Royalists in this wing, restoring order to his broken forces, made a furious attack on the parliamentary cavalry, threw them into disorder, pushed them upon their own infantry, and put that whole wing to rout. When ready to seize on their carriages and baggage, he perceived Cromwell, who was now returned from pursuit of the other wing. Both sides were not a little surprised to find that they must again renew the combat for that victory, which each of them thought they had already obtained. The front of the battle was now exactly counterchanged, and each army occupied the ground which had been possessed by the enemy at the beginning of the day. This second battle was equally furious and desperate with the first, but after the utmost efforts of courage by both parties, victory wholly turned to the side of the Parliament. The prince's train of artillery was taken, and his whole army pushed off the field of battle. This event was in itself a mighty blow to the king, but proved more fatal in its consequences. The Marquis of Newcastle was entirely lost to the royal cause. That nobleman, the ornament of the court and of his order, had been engaged, contrary to the natural bent of his disposition, into these military operations merely by a high sense of honour and a personal regard to his master. The dangers of war were disregarded by his valour, but its fatigues were oppressive to his natural indolence. Munificent and generous in his expense, polite and elegant in his taste, courteous and humane in his behaviour, he brought a great accession of friends and of credit to the party which he embraced. But amidst all of the hurry of action, his inclinations were secretly drawn to the soft arts of peace, in which he took delight, and the charms of poetry, music, and conversation often stole him from his rougher occupations. He chose Sir William Devenant, an ingenious poet, for his lieutenant-general. The other persons in whom he placed confidence were more the instruments of his refined pleasures than qualified for the business which they undertook and the severity and application requisite to the support of discipline were qualities in which he was entirely wanting. When Prince Rupert, contrary to his advice, resolved on this battle, and issued all orders without communicating his intentions to him, he took the field, but, he said, merely as a volunteer, and except by his personal courage, which shone out with luster, he had no share in the action. Enraged to find that all his successful labours were rendered abortive by one act of fatal temerity, terrified with the prospect of renewing his pains and fatigue. He resolved no longer to maintain the few resources which remained to a desperate cause, and thought that the same regard to honour which had at first called him to arms now required him to abandon a party where he met with such unworthy treatment. Next morning early he sent word to the prince 
that he was instantly to leave the kingdom, and without delay he went to Scarborough, where he found a vessel which carried him beyond sea. During the ensuing years, till the restoration, he lived abroad in great necessity, and saw with indifference his opulent fortune sequestered by those who assumed the government of England. He disdained, by submission or composition, to show obeisance to their usurped authority, and the least favourable censors of his merit allowed that the fidelity and services of a whole life had sufficiently atoned for one rash action into which his passion had betrayed him. Prince Rupert, with equal precipitation, drew off the remains of his army, and retired into Lancashire. Glenham, in a few days, was obliged to surrender York, and he marched out his garrison with all the honours of war. Lord Fairfax, remaining in the city, established his government in that whole country, and sent a thousand horse into Lancashire, to join with the parliamentary forces in that quarter, and attend the motions of the Scottish army marched northwards, in order to join the Earl of Callender, who was advancing with ten thousand additional forces, and to reduce the town of Newcastle, which they took by storm. The Earl of Manchester, with Cromwell, to whom the fame of this great victory was chiefly ascribed, and who was wounded in the action, returned to the Eastern Association, in order to recruit his army. While these events passed in the north, the king's affairs in the south were conducted with more success and greater abilities. Ruthven, a Scotsman, who had been created Earl of Brentford, acted under the king as general. The Parliament soon completed their two com armies commanded by Essex and Waller. The great zeal of the city facilitated this undertaking. Many speeches were made to the citizens by the parliamentary leaders, in order to excite their ardour. Hollis, in particular, exhorted them not to spare on this important occasion either their purses, their persons, or their prayers, and in general it must be confessed they were sufficiently liberal in all these contributions. The two generals had orders to march with their combined armies towards Oxford, and if the king retired into that city, to lay siege to it, and by one enterprise put a period to the war. The king, leaving a numerous garrison in Oxford, passed with dexterity between the two armies, which had taken Abingdon, and had enclosed him on both sides. He marched towards Worcester, and Waller received orders from Essex to follow him and watch his motions, while he himself marched into the west in quest of Prince Maurice. Waller had approached within two miles of the royal camp, and was only separated from it by the Severn, when he received intelligence that the king was advanced to Budley, and had directed his course towards Shrewsbury. In order to prevent him, Waller presently dislodged, and hastened by quick marches to that town, while the king, suddenly returning upon his own footsteps, reached Oxford, and having reinforced his army from that garrison, now in his turn marched out in quest of Waller. The two armies faced each other at Cropperty Bridge, near Banbury, but the charwell ran between them. Next day the king decamped, and marched towards Daventry. Waller ordered a considerable detachment to pass the bridge, with an intention of falling on the rear of the royalists. He was repulsed, routed, and pursued with considerable loss. Stunned and disheartened with this blow, his army decayed and melted away by desertion, and the king thought he might safely leave it and march westward against Essex. That general, having obliged Prince Maurice to raise the siege of Lyme, having taken Weymouth and Taunton, advanced still in his conquests, and met with no equal opposition. The king followed him, and having reinforced his army from all quarters, appeared in the field with an army superior to the enemy. Essex, retreating into Cornwall, informed the Parliament of his danger, and desired them to send an army which might fall on the king's rear. General Middleton received a commission to execute that service, but came too late. 
Essex's army, cooped up in a narrow corner at Lestithiel, deprived of all forage and provisions, and seeing no prospect of succor, was reduced to the last extremity. The king pressed them on one side, Prince Maurice on another, Sir Richard Granville on the third. Essex, Robarts, and some of the principal officers escaped in a boat to Plymouth. Balfour, with his horse, passed the king's outposts in a thick mist, and got safely to the garrisons of his own party. The foot under Skippen were obliged to surrender their arms, artillery, baggage, and ammunition, and being conducted to the Parliament's quarters, were dismissed. By this advantage, which was much boasted of, the king, besides the honour of the enterprise, obtained what he stood extremely in need of. The Parliament, having preserved the men, lost what they could easily repair. No sooner did this intelligence reach London than the Committee of the Two Kingdoms voted thanks to Essex for his fidelity, courage, and conduct, and this method of proceeding, no less politic than magnanimous, was preserved by the Parliament throughout the whole course of the war. Equally indulgent to their friends and rigorous to their enemies, they employed with success these two powerful engines of reward and punishment, in confirmation of their authority. That the king might have less reason to exult in the advantages which he had obtained in the West, the Parliament opposed to him very numerous forces. Having armed anew Essex's subdued, but not disheartened, troops, they ordered Manchester and Cromwell to march with their recruited forces from the Eastern Association, and, joining their armies to those of Waller and Middleton, as well as of Essex, offer battle to the king. Charles chose his post at Newbury, where the parliamentary armies, under the Earl of Manchester, attacked him with great vigour, and that town was a second time the scene of the bloody animosities of the English. Essex's soldiers, exhorting one another to repair their broken honour and revenge the disgrace of Lestithiel, made an impetuous assault on the royalists, and having recovered some of their cannon lost in Cornwall, could not forbear embracing them with tears of joy. Though the king's troops defended themselves with valour, they were overpowered by numbers, and the night came very seasonably to their relief, and prevented a total overthrow. Charles, leaving his baggage and cannon in Dennington Castle, near Newbury, forthwith retreated to Wallingford, and thence to Oxford. There Prince Rupert and the Earl of Northampton joined him, with considerable bodies of cavalry. Strengthened by this reinforcement, he ventured to advance towards the enemy, now employed before Dennington Castle. Essex, detained by sickness, had not joined the army since his misfortune in Cornwall. Manchester, who commanded, though his forces were much superior to those of the king, declined an engagement and rejected Cromwell's advice, who earnestly pressed him not to neglect so favourable an opportunity of finishing the war. The king's army, by bringing off their cannon from Dennington Castle in the face of the enemy, seemed to have sufficiently repaired the honour which they had lost at Newbury and Charles, having the satisfaction to excite between Manchester and Cromwell equal animosities with those which formerly took place between Essex and Waller, distributed his army into winter quarters. Those contests among the parliamentary generals, which had disturbed their military operations, were renewed in London during the winter season, and each being supported by his own faction, their mutual reproaches and accusations agitated the whole city and parliament. There had long prevailed in that party a secret distinction, which, though the dread of the king's power had hitherto suppressed it, yet in proportion as the hopes of success became nearer and more immediate, began to discover itself with high contest and animosity. 
The independents, who had at first taken shelter and concealed themselves under the wings of the Presbyterians, now evidently appeared a distinct party, and betrayed very different views and pretensions. We must here endeavor to explain the genius of this party and of its leaders, who henceforth occupy the scene of action. During those times, when the enthusiastic spirit met with such honor and encouragement, and was the immediate means of distinction and preferment, it was impossible to set bounds to these holy fervors, or confine within any natural limits what was directed towards an infinite and a supernatural object. Every man, as prompted by the warmth of his temper, excited by emulation, or supported by his habits of hypocrisy, endeavored to distinguish himself beyond his fellows, and to arrive at a higher pitch of saintship and perfection. In proportion to its degree of fanaticism, each sect became dangerous and destructive, and as the independents went a note higher than the Presbyterians, they could less be restrained within any bounds of temper and moderation. From this distinction, as from a first principle, were derived, by a necessary consequence, all the other differences of these two sects. The independents rejected all ecclesiastical establishments, and would admit of no spiritual courts, no government among pastors, no interposition of the magistrate in religious concerns, no fixed encouragement annexed to any system of doctrines or opinions. According to their principles, each congregation, united voluntarily and by spiritual ties, composed within itself a separate church, and exercised a jurisdiction but one destitute of temporal sanctions, over its own pastor and its own members. The election alone of the congregation was sufficient to bestow the sacerdotal character, and as all essential distinction was denied between the laity and the clergy, no ceremony, no institution, no vocation, no imposition of hands, was, as in all other churches, supposed requisite to convey a right to holy orders. The enthusiasm of the Presbyterians led them to reject the authority of prelates, to throw off the restraint of liturgies, to retrench ceremonies, to limit the riches and authority of the priestly office. The fanaticism of the independents, exalted to a higher pitch, abolished ecclesiastical government, disdained creeds and systems, neglected every ceremony, and confounded all ranks and orders. The soldier, the merchant, the mechanic, indulging the fervors of zeal and guided by the elapses of the spirit, resigned himself to an inward and superior direction, and was consecrated, in a manner, by an immediate intercourse and communication with heaven. The Catholics, pretending to an infallible guide, had justified upon that principle their doctrine and practice of persecution. The Presbyterians, imagining that such clear and certain tenets as they themselves adopted could be rejected only from a criminal and pertinacious obstinacy, had hitherto gratified to the full their bigoted zeal, in a like doctrine and practice. The independents, from the extremity of the same zeal, were led into the milder principles of toleration. Their mind, set afloat in the wide sea of inspiration, could confine itself within no certain limits, and the same variations in which an enthusiast indulged himself, he was apt, by a natural train of thinking, to permit in others. Of all Christian sects, this was the first which, during its prosperity as well as its adversity, always adopted the principle of toleration, and it is remarkable that so reasonable a doctrine owed its origin not to reasoning, but to the height of extravagance and fanaticism. Popery and prelacy alone, whose genius seemed to tend towards superstition, were treated by the independents with rigor. 
The doctrines, too, of fate or destiny were deemed by them essential to all religion. In these rigid opinions, the whole sectaries, amidst all their other differences, unanimously concurred. The political system of the independents kept pace with their religious. Not content with confining to very narrow limits the power of the crown, and reducing the king to the rank of first magistrate, which was the project of the Presbyterians. This sect, more ardent in their pursuit of liberty, aspired to a total abolition of the monarchy, and even of the aristocracy, and projected an entire equality of rank and order, in a republic, quite free and independent. In consequence of this scheme, they were declared enemies to all proposals of peace, except on such terms as they knew it was impossible to obtain, and they adhered to that maxim, which is in the main prudent and political, that whoever draws the sword against his sovereign should throw away the scabbard. By terrifying others with the fear of vengeance from the offended prince, they had engaged greater numbers into the opposition against peace than had adopted their other principles with regard to government and religion. And the great success which had already obtended the arms of the Parliament, and the greater which was soon expected, confirmed them still further in this obstinacy. Sir Henry Vane, Oliver Cromwell, Nathaniel Fiennes, and Oliver St. John, the Solicitor General, were regarded as the leaders of the independents. The Earl of Essex, disgusted with a war of which he began to foresee the pernicious consequences, adhered to the Presbyterians, and promoted every reasonable plan of accommodation. The Earl of Northumberland, fond of his rank and dignity, regarded with horror a scheme which, if it took place, would confound him and his family with the lowest in the kingdom. The Earls of Warwick and Denby, Sir Philip Stapleton, Sir William Waller, Hollis, Massey, Whitlock, Maynard, and Glynn, had embraced the same sentiments. In the Parliament, a considerable majority, and a much greater in the nation, were attached to the Presbyterian party, and it was only by cunning and deceit at first, and afterwards by military violence, that the independents could entertain any hopes of success. End of section 34, chapter 57, part 2. Recording by Greg Golding of Georgetown, Ontario, Canada.